Gold Star parents have their say at a forum organized by Representative Daryl Issa. The judge in the classified documents case raised concerns over Prosecutor Jack Smith's request. Teen mobs continue to be a problem for big blue cities. Vermont law goes after crisis pregnancy centers. And a huge child trafficking bust verifies claims made by the movie Sound of Freedom and undermine critics of the movie. All this and much more on today's edition of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. If uh, you are joining us live, it is a good morning to you. And if you are waiting for the podcast, it should be up about 20, 25 minutes after the live show is done. So I appreciate you either way, whether you're listening live or listening by the podcast, you're listening to Truth and Politics and Culture. And I am Dr. Tony Bean. My landing place is North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are um, equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. And we look forward to that group of leaders, the new group coming in, some this week, some next week. We got returning students coming. We'll have brand new students coming in. Um, just a lot of stuff happening at North Greenville, a lot of exciting stuff. Um, I, I want to take just a few minutes here this morning before we dive into the news. Uh, because every now and then, I, I need to remind people, as this is a fairly new broadcast, um, I did 22 years on radio, but uh, doing the broadcast this way, doing it live online and then having the podcast up and available is a little bit different format. And there are new people joining. We're getting new listeners every day. And so it, it's important, I think, for people to kind of hear once they check out the show what it is exactly that we're trying to accomplish here. There are plenty of shows that are philosophical in nature. I mean, you you can um, there there are shows you can listen to that will explain the deeper philosophical truths of what's going on in the world. There are shows out there, podcasts that talk about worldviews and their significance, that talk about culture from a philosophical uh, platform. Um, and then there are shows that just talk about the news. I mean, they just they put news out there from purely a political standpoint. Those shows will highlight news stories that are particularly good for their particular political party that they're trying they are trying to support. And there's not really any analysis. There's just and many times on those shows, there's a lot of decrying of the, the news in the story, in other words, uh, how it goes against a particular uh, par political party and how it may be used to advance the political party of the person who's doing the show. What I'm trying to do here is a little bit different, and it I try to look at the news every day. There are plenty of stories out there, and I try to do two things. My, I, I want to inform you about what's going on, and then I want to talk about why 
what's going on is significant from a biblical perspective. In other words, this story is important. This story matters to us. Here's how we look at this story through the lens of a Christian worldview. And, and to have a Christian worldview just simply means you're bringing biblical truth to bear. You're looking through the things you know to be true according to God's Word, and you're seeing the world through the filter and the lens of truth, objective truth, as presented in the Word of God. And so your worldview is made up of, of, of what you believe, It's and, and everybody has one. I mean, that that's one thing that people wonder sometimes. Worldview sounds like an ethereal type term. It's transcendental. It's sort of uh, otherworldly. Well, actually, it's just simply the way you filter. It's whatever filter that you've developed um, in, in order to look at the news. And I've tried to develop a Christian worldview filter over the years. And so that that's what we're doing here. And that's why you may hear um, several stories throughout the course of the program. And then we try to bring to bear on those stories the idea of a Christian worldview. That there are basically um, three types of worldviews that you can have. There, now, and within these three categories, uh, then the, the types begin to fan out, and you've got multiple categories under the main types. But the main types of, of worldview is, is naturalism, um, and, and, and then that would simply be that everything has a natural cause, there is no creator. There is no um, divine mind behind the universe. Everything happens by a series of accidents. And if you view the world through that worldview, you're going to come to some very different conclusions than if you look at the world through the worldview of Christianity or the worldview of theism. That is, a belief that there is a God and that God has revealed himself and that we can know something about God because of the way that he reveals himself in creation, but also the way that he reveals himself in through his word. You have general revelation, and then you have specific revelation, or um, it, where general revelation is, you look around at the created order, and you're, you immediately are made aware that God is revealing himself in the beauty and the order of creation. And then you pick up God's word, and you understand that in, in, in addition to the general revelation that we have because we're here and that we're created by a holy God, we have specific or directed or revealed uh, revelation, things that God reveals about himself specifically, his character, his nature, and how we're supposed to relate to him. I mean, you would think that if we have a God of the universe who has made all things, that that the God who made us, our creator, gets to decide how we have a relationship with him and how that look, what that looks like. So um, you have basically naturalism, theism, and then what I would call pantheism or this viewpoint that it's, it, yeah, the world came about by natural causes, but there is no difference between the spiritual world and the physical world. They, they're all kind of meshed together. Most Eastern religious systems hold some view of this, that the line between the physical and the metaphysical is, is blurred, and you, you really, there is no God, there is a life force that is created somehow 
through the energy that we find in the universe. So it's kind of between naturalism, which is the idea that there's nothing driving everything, it's all blind chance, and the idea of theism, which says there is a God who is in control, who is sovereign, who is loving, who, is, who has characteristics, uh, but he's a God of justice as well. He has characteristics that can be readily observed. So every, every story, everything that we think about in our culture today is influenced by whether we believe in naturalism, which is basically there's this long void of nothing, and then there's something, and followed by a long void of nothing. Um, there's, there's just, you, you have this window of opportunity, you live, uh, you came from nothing, and you're going to nothing, and so while you're here, you better make the best of it. Um, as, as we look at the news, we can see people with that worldview behaving in a particular way because there's nothing transcendental. There's nothing beyond this life, and there's no purpose to this life. And so they live according to the moment, and they self-identify. Their identity is not wrapped up in the fact that they're created in the image of a loving God. Their identity is simply self-created as they go along, and they have complete autonomy over their identity, there's no identity given to them by their creator, um, and then and then the 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 third worldview that we talked about, which is a meshing of the spiritual and the the physical and the metaphysical, where uh, everything kind of flows together. Um, there 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 may seem to be a purpose in that worldview, but it's very hard to discover and very hard to apply because. It's, it's sort of like nailing jello to the wall when you get right down to it, uh, figuring out what those relationships are like in a physical versus metaphysical sense. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm talking about these things today because I'm in the midst of something uh, known as the uh, Colson Fellows Program, and it is, I would have to say, a very much a life-shaping program for me. Uh, people like to use the word life or the phrase life changing all the time. Um, I, I wouldn't say that the information that I'm learning, I was in a seminar last night for an hour and a half. Um, the, I wouldn't say the information is life changing in the sense that it's making me think differently about the world. It, it's simply life shaping in that it's causing me to be able to better think about the world and to be able to communicate that in a, in a way that's better. So with all that in mind, a little bit of philosophical uh, discussion here. Um, I'm not saying that on the program we won't talk about philosophical things because if we're going to examine news stories based on a biblical worldview, then that's gonna be, it's going to be necessary for us to point out what the philosophical underpinnings are of the meaning of that story based on the Bible. Uh, so we talk a little bit about it, but it's it's not purely a philosophical show. We've got news stories that are on the in the headlines. What are we supposed to think about it? You know, I, I talk to a lot of Christians today who are just, and, and quite frankly, very discouraged because they see the decline and decay of culture. Uh, they see the the confusion and the chaos that is rising. We we need clarity in our world today. We need confidence. We need the courage that's necessary to stand up and say, here is truth, and we should live by it if we're going to survive. Uh, but it's very difficult when a lot of the culture just operates out of a foundation of, of chaos. And, and so 
the people are, are I, I actually hear these debates going on between Christians about whether or not, okay, it, does it really make any difference for us? Should we, shouldn't we just withdraw from the culture, um, get into our churches, learn as much about God as we can, and just go out and try to win people to Christ and not worry about what the culture's doing? Just kind of let it burn over here while we're over here uh, doing our best to rescue people out of the burning culture uh, because we can't put the fire out. There's nothing we can do over there. Um, I don't think we ever have that choice. We always have to be engaged if we're going to be biblical, if we're going to follow Jesus. We have to be engaged in having influence in our, in, in our sphere of influence in the moment that we've been called to, which is this moment. Um, we, we have to have do what we can to bring truth to light to be the salt and light. And you hear me, you hear me talk about this all the time, the, the meaning of, of, of what it means to be salt and light, particularly for Christians in the world that we live in today. And it simply means that we boldly step into the culture, but boldly, with it, and, and what I mean by boldly, we have the courage to step up, we have the confidence that we have the truth, and we have the clarity that, that needs to be brought to the chaos of the culture. So we do all those things, but we do it with humility. We do it, we, we don't um, claim that, when I say confidence, I'm not saying that we step up and we say we know the answer to every problem, absolutely. We step up and we say we have the framework given to us by God to be able to answer these problems correctly according to the truth of the Scripture that God has revealed and the things about God that he's revealed about himself. And one of the big things that we've been talking about in the Colson Fellows Program is the image of God and what that means for us as it bears out in us individually. The intrinsic worth that life has comes from the fact that we're created in the image of God and we're called to be stewards of everything that God has given us, everything that God owns, which is everything that is, uh, because he, in fact, is the creator. All right, um, and, and that leads us to, again, this question, do we withdraw or do we move forward? And you know, I, I, I think withdrawal is not an option, but we need to understand that moving forward could lead us to two possible outcomes. Now, it could be a lot of outcomes, but I'm going to boil it down today to two. And one would be, to one historical example, would be William Wilberforce, Another historical example would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Both men were Christian leaders at a time of great confusion and chaos in the world, and they both brought their biblical worldview to bear against the, the culture of the moment. Uh, William Wilberforce took 20 years to pound away in England, and he was successful in leading the charge to finally cause the British government to outlaw slavery. And so Wilberforce, you could look at that and say that that's a victory because he, 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 he persevered, he made the arguments to the point that finally the, the culture, the government came around to his way of thinking. Now, it wasn't Wilberforce alone, of course, but Wilberforce, was the, he was the out front person. There were others that joined him. He was able to get others to see his, his way, and, and as time went by, the British government acquiesced to the truth that humanity made in the image of God should not be engaged in enslaving anyone. Um, and then we look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and we say, well, 
his life was a failure because in Nazi Germany, he stood up against Hitler. He stood up against a church that was acquiescing, that was giving Hitler space, that actually supported the Nazis. Um, and, and he called the church back to, the, the, to be the church. And Bonhoeffer was executed just weeks before the Allies got to the concentration camp, or the prison, I should say. He was, he was being held in a prison um, where he was executed, where he was hung. And he was executed in, in the end for his tangential involvement in the plot to assassinate Hitler. That was the charge against him. And of course, Bonhoeffer was somewhat, if you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was somewhat involved in that because he saw the evil of Adolf Hitler. Uh, but his, his main crime was that he simply would not support the Fuhrer. He would not support a worldview that was evil, and he wouldn't acquiesce to it or to uh, lie to himself about it. <clears throat> and he stood for the truth of God, and he paid with his life. <clears throat> it was not Dietrich Bonhoeffer's sacrifice that turned the tide of the war for for in that particular case, he was someone who stood and was faithful and was martyred. Wilberforce is someone who stood and was faithful and was rewarded in his life, in during his lifetime, with the abolition of slavery, which is something that he worked for. And I would say this, um, we, we talked about this in the seminar last night. <clears throat> Excuse me just a minute. I'm having trouble with all this. I don't know what what it is about this time of year, uh, but for some reason, for me, this is when I start having all this crud that you have to deal with early in the morning, and it affects my voice. But anyway, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was faithful in his day against the evil of of the Nazis, and he gave his life. And but he honored God in the sacrifice that he made. And in the end, Nazism was defeated. Now, it was defeated by Allied bombing of, of Berlin, plus a whole lot of courageous acts, the storming of, of Normandy. We could go on and on. I don't want to refight World War II here, but I, I want us to understand that Bonhoeffer's sacrifice was not in vain because he honored God with his life. And I think we, we as Christians don't know if we've just been called to this cultural moment, and we don't know if we're going to see a Wilberforce moment where we see um, a, a change of mind and attitude and worldview that results in a great victory, or if we're living in a Bonhoeffer moment where our call is to be faithful even unto death, and we're, we're, we may not see... We not, may not live to see any kind of physical victory come out of it, but our victory lies in the fact that we are faithful. Faithfulness is what points to whether we win or lose in this case. So for I, I'm, I'm saying this, and I, I hope this is an encouragement to you as a Christian, uh, because it, it, it should be. Whether we live in a Wilberforce moment or a Bonhoeffer moment, our call from God is the same. Our call from God to be influencers in the culture and to push back against evil that is subverting and taking the life of the innocents, we have a responsibility to stand in that gap and with humility, but with confidence and courage, be clear 
about what God's Word has to say about it. And so that's what I try to do here every day, and I'm trying to get better at it as, as, as time goes by. I'm still learning. I'm 65 years old. Um, I, I, I hope that in, throughout the course of my life I've obtained some knowledge, um, but I, I'm still in the process of growing and, and learning more, and I think that's another thing that's important for us as, as we look at the time in which we live, which is very chaotic, very difficult, but in order to live successfully in this moment that God has called us to, we have to be constantly studying His Word, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and continually gaining knowledge that will make us wise in the way that we respond to the world around us. All right, with all that in mind, I want to talk about this story. I talked about it briefly yesterday, but I didn't put up a podcast yesterday. I had some problems with the broadcast because for some reason, um, my phone, when I, I was playing uh, a soundbite off of the phone of President Trump speaking at the Silver Elephant Dinner, and I had no idea that that soundbite was still running in the background while I was talking to a, to a, through a good portion of the show. I couldn't hear it in my headphones which I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I'm supposed to be able to hear everything coming through this board that's happening through my headphones, but apparently for some reason I couldn't hear that. So I didn't put up, and the show, the show was brief yesterday. It was only 15 minutes because I, I had a doctor's, early doctor's appointment. So there won't, there won't be a podcast from yesterday. This, this will be the, um, uh, the, there will be a podcast Today, So I talked about this story briefly yesterday, but I wanted to come back to it because of the significance of it when it comes to understanding the influence of a biblical worldview in our culture. Uh, 21-year-old Kaya Sanat is a switch social media influencer with 15 million followers. Now, I, I had never heard his name before. I mean, but obviously I'm in the minority if 15 million people are listening to this guy and he's 21 years old and he's got a lot of influence. Uh, Sanat advertised a PlayStation giveaway in Union Square for 4 p.m. on Friday afternoon and in a short amount of time there were several thousand, mostly teenagers gathered and they began climbing onto cars that, that were stuck in traffic. I mean, you, it, it's four o'clock, it's rush hour in, in New York, and you've got, you're calling all these people into an area which is very congested to begin with. Um, so anyway, they, they gathered and they started climbing on these cars. They were beating on the sides of cars. They were throwing rocks and bottles, looting nearby stores, because once you get a crowd that large with several thousand, then an anonymity kicks in. In other words, pe no, people are not going to know you from the rest of the mob, and you can do things that normally you wouldn't do, or at least you feel comfortable, you feel empowered to go out and start doing things like breaking windows and taking stuff. So at one point, there was a, a young man that jumped on top of a damaged car, and a crowd of young people were cheering him on while they kicked in the windows. Several fights broke out during the melee. Um, Sinat was actually at the event and when he described this, I mean, he was talk, He was asking people to please stop. I mean, he was basically wading into this and saying, you know, asking people to stop doing the violence uh, just because, you know, he had called them there to, to get this PlayStation. Dozens of officers were called to the scene. They had to call out a riot squad, um, and they were able to stop the chaos by about 6 p.m., 
But when all the dust settled, 66 people had been arrested and approximately half were minors. Uh, Senate was ticketed and told to appear in court on August 18th, and he's going to face charges. He's facing charges against him for first-degree rioting, inciting a riot, promoting an unlawful gathering. And the mayor of New York, Eric Adams, came out and said that there were likely outside agitators who were pushing the violence on others. So instead of really addressing the violence, now, Mayor Adams was not terrible here at this, but he refused, for whatever reason, a lot of our leaders, our political leaders, are, are not willing to condemn rioting outright because I, I, I don't know why. I mean, are they afraid of alienating the rioters? Uh, do they think these people are voters that are going to go out and vote them out of office if they get insulted? Um, I, I really think it's coming from a worldview that says that people are basically good. And if you believe that, then instead of holding the people accountable for the bad actions that they obviously engage in, your first thought is going to be, well, let's find out why these good people would do this bad thing. And the truth is that these people are sinners. Now, that doesn't make them bad in the sense that everything that they do is bad, but these are not good people that need more information. These are people who have been affected by a broken worldview that says that they aren't made in the image of God, that life isn't precious, that they're owed something by the universe, that when they go out and take these actions, since life has no meaning and they're preceded by the void and they're going to go into the void once they die, then why not live in such a way in this life that simply indulges every impulse that you have? In other words, you cast off all restraint because this is all we're going to get. And when you see the breakdown, I mean, when you have this many people come together, there, there's a, a lack of teaching somewhere about community standards, about how we're supposed to behave toward our neighbors. You know, we're not supposed to break into stores and loot simply because we can do it with a good chance of not being caught. We're, you know... Uh, the the only way to restrain people is that people restrain themselves because of something they believe about how they're supposed to live with each other, or we're restrained by law enforcement, by an outside force. And th this is we're seeing more and more and more of this, and our elected officials refuse to deal with the root problem because they think it's going to be insulting. They, they've, they've got a problem. They get elect, elected by constituents who want to make sure that abortion is available on demand so that people get the message that life has no real meaning or purpose beyond self-gratification. Um, they they are, are wanting to get elected um, by people who think that the police are systemically racist and the only reason that they would arrest someone in this situation is because of their race. And that, yeah, even if they're breaking windows, going into shops, taking things that don't belong to them, destroying public property, attacking innocent people, all of that stems from the way that they've been treated, that society has not been good to them, and they're simply responding, how can we expect anything less 
when we have a society that treats young people the way that it does. Rather than calling them into personal accountability for their actions that are clearly wrong, we make excuses for those actions, and every time we do that, we're perpetuating more of that behavior and creating more chaos that eventually people are going to start pushing back against on their own. Because you can't, if, if the police won't provide stability, if, if the culture won't provide stability by providing stable homes, uh, philosophies of treating people, each other with respect, if we won't provide that, then the people eventually are going to provide it on their own. And that's, that's not a place where we want to be, where we have people having to protect their homes violently, sometimes if necessary, or protect their property, or, I mean, it, if, 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 it gets, if it comes down to that, we're kind of back to the old Wild West where everybody just kind of, you know, if you cross me, um, I'm going to take you out. I won't be insulted. You know, it reminds me of John Wayne um, in, in The Shootist. You know, he's talking about his code that he lives by. I won't be laid a hand on. I won't be insulted. And I won't be done wrong or whatever. I mean, I can't remember the whole thing. But it basically came down to this. I'm my own man. There's nobody going to protect me but me. I'm going to have to take things into my own hands if I want justice. And if that's the world that we end up in, it's going to be a difficult world. It's going to be a violent world. Um, and it, that we need both kinds of restraint in this world where this kind of chaos is taking place. We need the personal restraint that comes from our worldview, the fact that we believe life is precious and that everybody deserve respect, deserves respect, and that we are created in the image of God, and therefore we have meaning and worth and value. People who, who hold to that worldview are not going to go out and just begin to dance on top of cars, break windows, and loot and, and steal things that don't belong to them. Because they 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 see the idea of personal property as being important to the intrinsic value of the individual, and so this I mean it, we, we're and so we're either going to have to embrace these ideas and restrain ourselves, be restrained by law enforcement, which more and more is under attack. More and more public officials want law enforcement to take kid gloves toward violent offenders. And so if, if, if law enforcement won't restrain, if we won't practice self-restraint, then eventually we're going to have a, a, a very bad situation where we get into vigilanteism. All right. Uh, Chicago is also seeing a lot of acts of violence being carried out by mobs and young people. Footage from some of Chicago's riots showed dozens of minors uh, just two weekends ago looting a convenience store and destroying property in the city. And that culminated in the arrest of about 40 youth, including someone as young as 12 years old. And then Mayor Brandon Johnson of Chicago was asked his response, and, and basically he said that it's not appropriate to be insulting toward the rioters. Well, what about the property owners? What about the people that got hurt? You, there's, there seems to be no respect for them while we're trying, we're, we're called to give respect to the people that are causing the chaos. And this is exactly what got Mayor Lori Lightfoot 
kicked out of office. I mean, it had been a long time in Chicago since a mayor hadn't been reelected. And Lori Lightfoot was replaced, Hope and people were hoping that a new mayor would come in and have some common sense when it comes to the protection of public property and the establishment of order. But so far, Brandon Johnson has proven himself to be cut from the same mold as Mayor Lightfoot, that the, the source here, the problem here is racism. It's not a lack of values. It's that when we look at these people, we, we, are, we are racist if we call them out and if we call their behavior bad. And that is not a formula that will change the, the, anybody's life. I mean, it's, it's not a formula that's going to improve the situation, lessen the chaos. In fact, it's going to increase the chaos and raise the possibility that people are going to begin to take the law in their own hands and protect themselves if law enforcement fails to do so and if public officials look at this not as a problem that is systemic in communities where families have broken down, where values are not being passed on, where schools are afraid to address discipline because they're afraid of the consequences. Uh, if, if we're not willing to see that that is the, the root or the foundation of some of this behavior, then we're never going to make any progress. And I mean, and, and here are the, here's Chicago by the numbers. I mean, this is, this is just straight from the stat sheet. Father's Day weekend, 74 people shot. Fourth of July weekend, 33 people shot. Memorial Day weekend, 57 people shot, 11 killed. One was two years old. This is violence. This is chaos breaking out across the city in areas where people are just trying to live their lives. And they can't because the, uh, you have the breakdown of civil order and you have police who are afraid if they come in and enforce the law, they're going to be dragged into court. They're going to be called up that, that law enforcement is a bad thing because the police are racist and they're not protecting the interest of the people. They're not just trying to uphold the law, but they're the Gestapo. I mean, this is how they're portrayed in many ways by the very elected officials that people are putting their confidence in to do something about alleviating the chaos. So um, let's move on. Another story, that this story from yesterday, what took place in, at this hearing that Daryl Issa set up, Congressman Issa from California, uh, for the Gold Star family members that had service people, members of their family, die in Afghanistan in the chaos of the withdrawal, the botched Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, they were given a chance to to tell their stories in a public forum. Um, and this was not an, like an official, I don't think, congressional hearing. This was something that Daryl Issa convened so that the members would have a place where they could, they could air their feelings. They haven't spoken out publicly since the Afghanistan disaster. Um, and every one of them said, look, we've been lied to uh, by the Biden administration, about the circumstances around the day that a suicide bomber was able to break through security, detonating a bomb that killed 13 service members and 170 uh, civilians. And this happened at the Abbey Gate at the airport in Kabul. Um, and, and this was days before the United States pulled out completely. So the family members 
uh, they pretty much believe that they're entitled to answers about their questions about the circumstances surrounding the death of their loved ones. They want the country to know what happened, and they want to know who is responsible. This is Kelly Barnett, whose son, Taylor, died that way. And I mean, this is emotional testimony. By President Biden and the Pentagon about the circumstances. Okay, well, we don't have Kelly. Um, let, let me just say that her testimony was extremely uh, compelling. It was, and then her husband, I mean, when, when he got up, he was, Kelly talked about the heartbreak of losing her, her son, and her husband was just angry. And you can imagine why. It's the same thing, the loss of his son. But he really called the Biden administration into account. Do what our son did. Be a grown-ass man. Admit to your mistakes. Learn from them so that this doesn't happen ever, ever again. You all need to resign immediately. Okay, obviously, anger as well as heartbreak over the loss of his son. Uh, they also had uh, another person testify, Christy Shamblin, um, was she spoke at the forum. Her family member was Sergeant Nicole G, and it was her daughter that she lost in that suicide bombing. When our leaders, including the Secretary of Defense and our Commander-in-Chief, called this evacuation a success as if there should be celebration, it is like a knife in the heart for our families. I live every single day knowing that these deaths were preventable. My daughter could be with us today. It, it really doesn't get much more um, emotional than that. Parents talking about just a breakdown in the way that this withdrawal went. This was one of the, the, the main failures of the Biden administration. And look, in war... You're going to have breakdown. You're going to have failures. You're going to have miscommunication. You're going to have things that happen that don't happen or go according to plan. But the question surrounding the Afghanistan withdrawal ever since this debacle took place is what was the plan? What, what was there a plan that was actionable to get American forces out of Afghanistan? And was it reasonable to withdraw every single American force uh, to move back from occupied areas and to protect only the airport, giving the Taliban the opportunity to just take over the country. And look, I get it. I, I know the Biden administration had some belief that the Afghanistan army trained by the United States and, and using billions of dollars worth of U.S. equipment was, was going to be able to stand against the Taliban. But what happened is that the Afghanistan army just melted away without American support, without being able to turn around and see that the Americans were going to be there to support them and to protect them. They, they just simply stepped back because they could see that once the Americans withdrew from Afghanistan, that the jig was up and that the government was going to fall and that the people who were coming in to take over, um, they, they were, were people that, the army members were going to be accountable to. They didn't want to be seen on the wrong side of the battle once the Taliban took over. And that was their mindset, rather than the mindset of, well, let's fight and keep the Taliban from taking over. Their mindset became, became 
let's not anger the Taliban anymore because they're ultimately going to win this without American support, and we're going to be found on the wrong side of the ledger. And so the, the defense just melted away. And this, that's what a lot of these parents are just, I mean, in their heartbreak, they want the American people to know why their sons and daughters died that day. They want the truth to come out. Steve McCoo said his son's life was sacrificed needlessly. And again, he was heartbroken, but also angry. This is what he said yesterday. My son needed a commander in chief who cared solely about his life. Instead, his commander-in-chief chose to use him as a pawn so he can meet his September 11th deadline and get the optics he wanted. Okay, get, getting the optics. Um, that's what these parents think. They believe that President Biden made a promise, and in order to fulfill that promise, he elevated the fulfilling of the promise above the necessity of protecting the lives of the people that were there, the innocents, the Americans, uh, many who were left behind, um, and the service members who gave their lives and put their lives in danger trying to get as many people out as possible. Now, the Department of Defense released a statement that said, in part, we express our deepest condolences to the Gold Star families who lost loved ones at the tragic bombing at the Abbey Gate. We're grateful, we're grateful for their service, sacrifice, and committed efforts during the evacuation operations. Uh, we haven't heard anything directly from President Biden yet, uh, but we did hear that statement from the Department of Defense. And of course, I mean, that's that's a statement of condolence. I mean, it's the least that the Department of Defense, of Defense can do. But that's not what these parents want. They don't want simply the Defense Department to come and say, yes, we're sorry, we know that your um, son or daughter gave their life and we appreciate their sacrifice and their service, they want the Defense Department to come forward and explain how their children died, their sons and daughters died, um, and, and why it happened, and to tell the truth about it. Um, you may remember in April of 2021, that's when President Biden first announced that American forces were going to withdraw from Afghanistan. And, of course, they've been there for 20 years um, and the president promised on April 21st, he said, look, the withdrawal is not going to be hasty. We're not going to rush to the exit. It's going to be carried out as the, excuse me, as the president said, responsibly, deliberately, and safely. Now, that was April of 2021, and the, the, it was supposed, we were supposed to be out by September. But by August 15th, the U.S.-backed government collapsed when the Taliban band fighters took over the capital. And again, this is, this is because they underestimated, they overestimated the willingness of the Afghan army to defend their country, and they underestimated the strength of the Taliban. And, but, they, but actually, the Biden administration was told by military leaders that this was likely going to happen. Um, that the Afghanistan army wasn't fully ready to stand up and that the government would likely collapse in short order. But the Biden administration didn't take that advice. They decided to go ahead and pull out. Toward the end of August, President Biden promised that he would not leave any American out or any allies behind and that any attack on American forces would be met with a swift and forceful response. Well, the suicide bombing... This was, this was in the middle of August. The suicide bombing took place 
shortly after that, um, on August 26th, and the retaliatory strike that the Biden administration touted that they, they were able to take out a su- another su- suicide bomber that was uh, headed toward the airport on August 29th, it turned out it killed 10 innocent people, including seven children. And the government took forever to come clean about that. Uh, the United States left behind billions of dollars in equipment uh, that the Taliban uh, army took over or the Taliban fighters took, and thousands of U.S. citizens and allies we were not able to get out. Now, they've continued, to be fair, the Biden administration has continued to get these people out even after the collapse of the government, and they say that they've gotten everybody out that wants to get out. There are others who say that that's just not true, that they haven't been able to evacuate everybody, that there are still people there that are afraid to surface because if they do, they'll be caught by the Taliban before they could they could be evacuated. So this, you know, what what is the what is the worldview here that is on display? I think the most important point for us to look at from a biblical perspective is that people need the truth. They can absorb a lot of grief. They can find a place to be able to mourn and then move on as long as they believe that the truth about their son or daughter's sacrifice is being made public. And that's what they feel like hasn't happened here. They feel like the Biden administration, because this was a terrible embarrassment, it was the biggest embarrassment of the Biden presidency, I think, so far, um, and and they 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 don't want to talk about it. They they want to just be able to say thank you for your service. We're sorry for your loss. Now let's move on. And the parents are saying no. We can't move on. Not until we know the truth. Not until the government acknowledges not just the service of our sons and daughters, but the circumstances in which they served and the fact that they were heroic in their death. Um, the the cut that I wish you could have heard, the first one I was going to play that, that was, was not queued up properly, um, it was Barnett was saying the, the, was, was saying in that in that clip that that she was told that her son died instantly and that's not true. Uh, witnesses have come and have come forward and said that some of these soldiers were wounded terribly and did subsequently die but were heroic in their actions between the moment of the bombing and their ultimate death. And, and these parents want that to be known. They, they want the sacrifice of their children to mean something. I mean, as a parent, you know, that, and, and as someone who cherishes his family, and if you've listened to me very long on this program, you know how important my family is to me, my wife, my children, my grandchildren. And if, if, if a sacrifice is required, then, then people need to know. They need to know that that sacrifice was not in vain, and they want everybody to know that the sacrifice was made for a noble purpose. And that's all these. That's what these these parents are asking for. All right, um, we need to switch topics here for a second. I want to talk about a new law in Vermont that's banning pro-life pregnancy centers from counseling women. This is a pattern. This, this new law is a pattern that is going on across the country 
to take out crisis pregnancy centers because one of the most effective pro-life organizations that we have in the country are crisis pregnancy centers that are pro-life. Women go there in a crisis pregnancy situation. In most cases, they get a free ultrasound and, 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 and they're counseled that because a lot of women are afraid that if they have their baby, they're going to be alone. They're going to have to handle the, the burden of parenthood, the responsibility of parenthood. And parenthood should never be a burden. It should always be a welcomed responsibility. But it's still a very serious responsibility. And it can be scary if, if you're young and you're pregnant and you don't know whether you're going to get any support from your family or from the, your, your boyfriend or husband. I mean, it can be a, I, I get it. And, and crisis pregnancy centers offer the support, not just, yes, you're pregnant and you should keep the baby, but yes, you're pregnant. Here's why you should keep the baby, and we'll walk with you through this. We'll help you with things like formula and diapers. We'll stand by you. We'll, we'll, we'll walk with you. If you decide you want to give the baby up for adoption, then we'll help you find an agency that will do that, that will place the baby in a loving home. All crisis pregnancy centers do is give, in, give women the options that they're not going to be given if they walk into a Planned Parenthood facility. It, this is a worldview of, of people being created in the image of God that deserve an opportunity for life, that from the moment of conception, you have a unique individual that should be able to live and not die based on a desire for convenience or any kind of... Um, pain or um, any t any type of added responsibility that's going to come with being a parent. Those things don't trump the right to life that a person has once they're conceived. I mean, there's all kinds of decisions that can be made before a baby is conceived. You can decide not to have sex. You can decide that if you are going to have sex, you're going to make sure that you don't get pregnant or do everything you can to prevent pregnancy. But once you have sex, once you make the decision that, yes, I'm going to engage in an activity that I know full well may result in the life of another person, the instant that life is created, then that life supersedes any decision that you make after that moment. And in Vermont and around the country, this is not just Vermont, but this is just the latest, Salvo, you have these pro-abortion, pro-death organizations going out and going after crisis pregnancy centers, trying to shut them down. Why? Because they're effective, because they make a difference, because women who go there tend to not have abortions. A new law in Vermont may end up shutting down pro-life pregnancy centers, banning them from offering non-medical services and providing post-abortion counseling as well as subjecting them to steep fines if the state deems that their advertising misleads women into thinking that they provide or promote abortions. See, this has been the big mantra coming from those who want to get rid of the crisis pregnancy centers. Oh, they're lying to women. They're telling them that they're abortion providers. Look, I've been on the board of, a, of the Carolina Pregnancy Center in Spartanburg. I've been closely associated with the Piedmont Women's Center in Greenville. I can tell you that they do not lie. They make it clear that if you go to this clinic, what you are doing is finding alternatives to abortion. 
Now, I don't know what every pro-life center in the country does, but I can tell you the ones that I've been associated with here in South Carolina are upfront about who they are and the services that they provide. Uh, assisting the pregnancy centers in their fight and the national is the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, uh, who became recognized in the public sphere in 2018 when it challenged the constitutionality of California's FACT Act, which mandated that pro-life pregnancy centers feature posters in their facilities informing patients where they could get an abortion. In other words, the courts ruled in that case that the, these pregnancy centers can't be forced to make a statement that runs contrary to their beliefs. I mean, this is similar to the Supreme Court case we saw in 303 Creative, that the Supreme Court said, look, the, 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 you cannot be forced to say or to do things that violate your deeply held religious beliefs. In California, they wanted it to be speech. They, they, they wanted, California was going to try to make them say something that they didn't want to say or something that they didn't believe in. And this group, the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, was able to intervene and win that battle. Well, the, the Vermont legislature that leans heavily Democrat passed, governor, uh, passed and Governor Phil Scott, a Republican, signed S-37, a bill that censors the, that censors the center's ability to advertise their free services, according to the lawsuit. If the state attorney deems that a center's advertising of said services is misleading, then they could be subject to $10,000 in fines for each violation. The law bans pregnancy centers from offering non-medical services, which most importantly include post-abortion information and counseling, it applies only to pro-life pregnancy centers. Now, this is what's fascinating about this. If you want to get to the nub of it, if you want to find out what the real motivation is, take a look at where the, where the law is focused. If it only affects pro-life pregnancy centers and excludes abortion clinics that provide identical information, uh, duh, can we figure this out? That the, that the government of Vermont, the Democrats in the Vermont legislature, and the governor, who's a Republican, have chosen to single out crisis pregnancy centers and to come after them because they interfere with the industry of taking life in the womb, the abortion industry, Planned Parenthood. And so this is not only happening in Vermont, like I said, it's happening around the country. And how does this play into the Christian worldview? It all comes back to this question of, created in the image of God, that life has intrinsic value, that these are organizations that recognize that and are trying to help women make the decision to have their babies, that there are options other than abortion that they can choose that will respect the gift of life and acknowledge that life is a beautiful gift from God. All right, we've got time for maybe one more quick story here. I don't think we're getting to all the ones that I had in the introduction. But I did want to quickly say uh, Tony Kennett has this story at the Daily Signal today that 126 suspects of child trafficking and child sexual exploitation are in prison today because of an ongoing FBI investigation. The FBI, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and state and local law enforcement agencies collaborated in an operation called Operation Cross Country 
13, resulting in the rescue of 59 children and the arrest of 126 child traffickers that, who are alleged child traffickers. They've been arrested and charged with crime. Now, if you remember, when Sound of Freedom, the movie about child trafficking came out, the press began to attack this movie. They began to say that it was linked to QAnon, that this child trafficking business was being exaggerated. Um, and, and I mean, it, it's, it was unbelievable that the press would see an opportunity here, many in the press, not the entire press corps, not every news organization, but many organizations looked at this and tried to make it political. They took an issue that is a terrible issue of human trafficking, and they politicized it. Sound of Freedom was not politicizing anything. It was simply revealing the fact that human trafficking is enslaving young people at a rate that we've never seen in humanity in the history of the world. And this is something that we need to be concerned about. And yet many looked at it as an opportunity to inject politics where politics should never have been interjected because we're going back to the image of God. So many things come back to that in the conversations that we have in this world and the values that we place on things. Rescuing children who have been kidnapped and exploited for sexual purposes. Human trafficking is an affront to a holy God who loves the creation that he made. And of course, the evil that it represents and the heartbreak that it brings to families. Um, and and I, I'm just amazed. It would seem that this is one issue that politics could be put aside, and we could all agree that this is something that is good when the FBI is successful at getting all these children reunited with their families and putting these evil traffickers behind bars. Um Emma Waters, who is a research associate with the Heritage Foundation's DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, told the Daily Signal that she isn't surprised by the left's dismissive attitude. And, and I, I want to read her statement, and I must, I'm going to comment on it quickly, and then we're going to wrap up for today. But Emma Waters said, The attempts by mainstream media and leftist outlets to discredit Sound of Freedom are less surprising when you consider four of the main areas that aggravate child sexual exploitation. The porous southern border, no question that human trafficking, just like the proliferation of fentanyl in this country, is a result of having what amounts to an open southern border. Unaccountable social media platforms, which actually allow grooming in many cases um, to, to be, I mean, they look at it with, without uh, the critical eye that many believe that they should. Now, I'm not saying all social media companies. A lot of social media companies are, are, are now working harder to try to make sure that things like child trafficking and pornography is not slipping through, okay? So I'm not, I'm not trashing the entire social media platforms. I, I use social media platforms. But I'm saying that, that those who are calling for more controls often are dismissed because they say that this never happens on social media, that social media is never used for a nefarious purpose. And I think a fair-minded person would say 
that it's true that sometimes social media outlets can be exploited for this. Um, here's unaccountable, the social media platforms, child pornography and broken families. Now, she's right about, about the things that are contributing to human trafficking. And all of those fit into the Christian worldview category. Families being strengthened, not undermined. That's part of the Christian worldview. Um, back to the image of God, it, our bodies are not our own. The Bible says that we were bought with a price and that we're to glorify God in our bodies. Um, and that's an important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to understand the value of the individual. We, we, we would never accept human trafficking if everybody embraced the idea of the intrinsic worth of the individual. Um, and there are those, obviously, who don't do that. Um, and, and, of course, again, the border. What, what goes on at our southern border? Uh, people are often treated as political pawns, not as human beings. Uh, again, people who are made in the image of God don't need to be talked about as if they're chattel. We, if we're going to address the problems at the border, we have to address them from a, a, a platform of compassion where we're saying we need to control the border not just because of our desire in the United States to control the number of people that are coming in, but for the benefit of those who are trying to enter. If we have an orderly system and we have people coming for a, a purpose, then that upholds the value and intrinsic value of human beings. But if, if, we, if we vilify people because they're here illegally and don't consider that they're human beings made in the image of God, then we're violating that trust that God has given us, that call that God has given us to value every human life. We have to find solutions to our problems that uphold the, the value of the image of God in every individual. All right, that's all the time that we've got for today. I, I apologize for missing one of the clips. I'm, I'm still working, uh, trying to get all this stuff worked out to make sure I can operate it myself. Um, and so we hope that we will do better with that for the next time. But if you'd like to hear this program again, it'll be a podcast here in about 20 minutes. Should be available at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you can find a podcast. Tell your friends if you like the show. Help me promote the program and get new listeners. And leave me a good review when you download the podcast because that helps other people say, hey, this must be worth something. Have a great day. God bless you. I'll see you in the morning, 730.